So we are going to be in. Yeah, let's take a minute and look at that. <laughs> the title of today's message is Know Your Enemies. And we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, 11-13. In particular, verse 12, we'll spend more time on uh, this key verse in this section. And just by way of reminder, this is a section of Scripture that's really a concluding or summarizing section of the whole letter. We've been in this letter for about a year, and we've learned lots of things going through it. The letter is just packed full of amazing blessings we have in Christ. Uh, blessing upon blessing is, is laid out in the beginning, the first three chapters or so. And then the latter part of the letter is about these commands, these compelling commands, in light of the blessings, in light of this new life we have, in light of what it means to be forgiven of all our sins, to be uh, counted in Christ, included in Christ, and set apart in Him and for Him, what it means to live in light of that grace, that free gift of forgiveness and new life in Him. So the second half is about commands. And then this part is a summary, really. It's a, a way to live it out. And that's why we're slowing down. Um, one of the reasons we're slowing down is because it's a summary. It's, a, it's an application of all the blessings and all the commands and how they flow and get lived out in the context for the Ephesians, their context of the city and prov- uh, province of Asia, the city of Ephesus, but for us as well here uh, at King of Grace and in Haverhill. I trust that as we dig in today, we're going to learn more. We're going to learn about this, the reality that's behind this section of Scripture. The reality of this great cosmic battle. That's a theme in the letter to the Ephesians. This cosmic battle that's going on and the victory that Christ has won. His victory is our victory through faith. Uh, but there is a battle. He's won the battle, but the battle continues. There's still mopping up that goes on. And it's important for us to understand it. So we're going to slow down in verse 12 in particular to learn about uh, this enemy that we're at war in in Christ. So let's pray and ask God to teach us through His Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You instruct us. And Lord, through Your Word, not only are we informed, but we encounter You. We are transformed as You speak to us and You speak life. As You, God, the Holy Spirit, breathe on us and breathe on the proclamation of the Word. We are changed. And we thank You for that. And Lord, that's what we want. We, we live by Your Word and we ask that, God, You would speak. You would teach us. And we'd be transformed. Made into different people. More like You, Jesus, as individuals and as a group. And more effective in loving others around us as You call us to as well. We pray and we thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me in just starting in verse 11 and then going to verse 13. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. God's Word from Ephesians 6, 11-13. Again, we'll be looking at verse 12 in particular. In the early days of the French and Indian War back in the 1700s, mid-1700s, uh, the British sent a large expedition, a very large expedition, uh, over 1,300 strong. Actually, it was about 2,000 strong, but 1,300 strong 
went to take a fort that is, was uh, where Pittsburgh is today, Fort Duquesne. This force was so large that it didn't expect to have any trouble taking not only that fort, but all the forts that the French owned in that, in that area. These were trained men. These were British regulars. These were men who had fought many wars. They knew how to fight. They were really the, the best, one of the best armies in the whole world at the time. And they made their way up to Pittsburgh area. It was wilderness back then. And they faced a force that was at best half their number. This force that they were facing was comprised of some French soldiers, maybe 100 or 200 at the most, and then a number of of Algonquin Native Americans who were experienced warriors for sure. Their number was not clear anywhere from 200 to 600 or so at the most. And under most circumstances, this should have been a cakewalk for the British forces because they were well trained and they knew how to do things like this. They They should have marched in there and have taken the fort and all the other forts as they planned. But they didn't know their enemy. If you know the story, the expedition under General Braddock, um, what went on in the story is these British regulars who were used to fighting in the open fields were not ready for what they encountered in the wilderness on the way to Pittsburgh. What they encountered was a different sort of enemy. They expected what they normally saw was enemies that would line up in rows, two or three deep. They would typically line up in these rows and fire from these rows at the enemy. And then they would send bayonet charges and cavalry and so forth and kind of to finish off and to rout the enemy. That was the typical scenario in an open field. But what they faced in the wilderness were enemies who knew how to fight in those conditions. And they, and they were fired upon from behind trees and bushes. And the enemy would move and fire, move and fire. And this great force was decimated by this small force that knew how to fight in that terrain. General Braddock himself fell in the battle. And the soldiers, the whole force, just about panicked and fled at that point had it not been for a young continental colonel named George Washington who knew how to fight in that terrain, who knew that enemy, And with him were uh, Virginia militia who also knew how to fight. And they formed a rear guard as the rest of the British force retreated to safety. There were 900 casualties. And the majority of the 86 officers as well were included in that number. You have to know your enemy. And so I want to take time today in this series as we slow down in verses 10 through 20 to help us get to know our enemy. To know our enemy, not just to fill our minds with information, but that as a result of knowing our enemy, we might understand the context of this passage. For this verse 12 starts out saying, The reason for the armor is for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these evil forces. So the whole ground for for what the armor is and how we use it is on the sort of enemy we face. So if you don't know your enemy, you don't know why to wear the armor and even how to wear the armor. So it's important in this series that we slow down and, and we learn about our enemy. So I want to take time just to look at that. And there's a number of points. I actually don't know if I'm going to get through all this. I might have to stop halfway through. Um, and that's okay. We'll pick it up next week. But I want to dig into who our enemy is. And first, I want to say that the devil is a chief 
enemy. The devil is a chief enemy. Now that may seem obvious to you. I mean, it's in this text. And you've experienced perhaps the, the devil's schemes in your life. But, but I don't know about you, but for me, when I live day to day, I'm usually not thinking the devil is my chief enemy. I usually think about my chief enemy is my own fallen nature. The sin that's within. This crazy disposition that, that doesn't want to believe God. And doesn't want to trust God. And doesn't want to obey God naturally. This, this internal struggle that I have. That, that is the enemy I'm most aware of day to day. Sometimes there's certain angles to it. It might just be that my enemy is my own weakness. So not necessarily evil things in, in my human nature. Just my weakness. Just that I'm, I need sleep. And if I don't get enough sleep, I'm more tempted. Uh, uh, other aspects of just my humanity. Brain chemistry. Whatever it might be. Weaknesses. Human weaknesses. That's where I go. Sometimes I, I go to the idea that, well, it's the world. This world is a broken world. Our culture has elements in it that are good actually and godly, but it has elements in it that are, are contrary to God and enemies of God and things that seek to undermine my walk with God and our walk with God. So at times, those are the enemies I'm aware of. My, my flesh and, and, and the world. But did you notice in this passage, it actually doesn't say anything about that here. For actually, what does it say? It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I, I assume that includes me. It's not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This battle is not one with mere humans. Now, we're going to talk later that it certainly includes me and my fallen nature and fallen humanity. That this statement is not to say there's nothing with flesh and blood related to this. But the emphasis here is that the battle is not merely with humans. It's not with flesh and blood. It's with this array of enemies that are opposing us as believers and opposing God Himself. You see it in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But you see this elsewhere, this description throughout Scripture, throughout Paul's writing, and elsewhere. That, that this battle, this battle that Christ has actually won, involves certain enemies described as rules and authorities, powers and dominions. Ephesians 1, it says that Christ has in His victory exalt, been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ephesians 3 says that the church is actually put on display to make God's wisdom known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do we have that up there? 3.10. Good. Colossians 2 is a parallel. The book of Colossians is a parallel letter to Ephesians. And it says in chapter 2 that Christ in His victory on the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, we read that, that formerly when we lived in the old way, before we came to know Christ and put our trust in Him, belonged to Him, we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So in these passages, where is indwelling sin? Where is weakness? Where is the world? Where where are all the chief causes of our spiritual struggles that we usually blame? 
They're not here, but not, and they're certainly, they're here secondarily, and certainly not in the proportion with which we usually treat them. That's, I think, an incredibly illuminating truth from Ephesians for us. Wouldn't it be biblical to conclude that the devil is a far more significant enemy than we often assume in light of this passage and all the others? Wouldn't it be right to assume that he's much more involved in our struggles than we like to admit? Wouldn't it be right to say that we really don't know our enemy and our enemies that well? And therefore, aren't we in danger of fighting the wrong battles? Or fighting the right battles in the wrong way? Let me share a story from my own life. Years ago, I was an intern, uh, a church planting intern at a sister church, Covenant Fellowship Church, a key church in helping us to plant back in 2001. And it was early November. I was getting ready to actually preach five uh, separate messages that month. I was involved, we were involved with Alpha, and we were seeing people come to Christ. It was fantastic. We uh, were ready just about to make the decision to go ahead with the church plan. Everything was looking great, actually. And I had a fairly normal Monday. Monday was my day off. We were living in a rented townhouse at the time. Um, we got up and we had a nice family time together. Uh, we went to a nearby park to play hide-and-go-seek. The kids were young back then. And, and uh, we came back and was relaxing. I decided to just take a nap to catch up on some sleep. So I took my nap. And as I was waking up in those moments between consciousness and dreaming, this clear and powerful notion came to me in the form of a question. It was this, what have you done to your family? You are so poor and pathetic that you have to take them to a park to have fun. You don't have your own property. You gave up your yard and all that other stuff to subject them to this failed church, and church planting venture. You've ruined their lives and none of it's going to work. Now, I'm not saying that was exactly what was said, but that is pretty much what was said in those moments as I was waking up. It was clear and that was more or less the content and I believed its implication in those moments. I thought, I, what have I done? I've messed my kids up. I've ruined their lives. I entertained this evil notion and I found myself powerfully overwhelmed actually with a deep, dark sense of dread and despair. It affected me physically. A racing heart. My face was flushed. My nerve endings were burning as I came under this. And then another thing hit me right at that moment, just as vivid. It was this. You are despairing and panicking now. You can't pastor. You're disqualified for despairing and not believing God. And so the spiral kept going downwards into these waves of despair and darkness and anxiety. And actually, those waves went on for not just minutes, not just hours, but for days and even weeks. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. Sure, I had times in my life when I was anxious. Sure, I had moments. Actually, 
often before an important event in my church, I would have moments of anxiety and something like that, but nothing to that degree. I had actually known some spiritual evil and affliction when I was a a preteen. Another story. So I, I knew some of this stuff, but nothing to this level. And I had, thankfully, through my wife Peg and through others, I got help and I was getting better. But probably the most helpful thing for me was the conversation I had with my mentor and friend, Dave Harvey. I told him what was going on and I, and I told him, I, basically I submitted my resignation. I said, I, I don't think I'm qualified. Dave did not receive my resignation. He started asking me questions about what went on to describe it. And then asked me, is this something you've had before? Is this a regular thing? And I said, no, never had it happen before. And then he said this, I think you took a flaming dart from the enemy. And what you need to do is lift the shield of faith. That's what went on. That truth changed me because I had been spending my time, those hours and, and weeks, thinking, what is it in me? What's wrong? Where is, this, where is the sin in me that would cause me to despair like this? Why am I doubting God? What's going on? And I looked inside myself, and certainly there was some degree of myself involved. I'm not saying that wasn't the case. But that was the only place I looked. And I spent all this time probing in, self, in myself. I never considered that there was an outside source of my struggle. And when I got that, it changed everything. And I learned lessons and I experienced victory. And, and God taught me things through that that have helped me as a pastor and a believer ever since. I didn't know my enemy. But I learned who he was. And we ask you, do you know your enemy? Are you fighting the right enemy or the wrong enemy? Do you understand that the battle isn't merely with flesh and blood, but ultimately with spiritual forces of evil who will exploit your sin and weakness for sure and who will use the ways of the world, but they will be at work to work destruction in your life? What enemy are you fighting? Ephesians clearly calls us to fight the devil who is a chief enemy. The next point is that the devil isn't alone. And by the way, hang in, hang in there. <laughs> because we're going to talk about the victory. I'm going to finish with that. Always more important to know about that than anything. So don't be discouraged, but, but be equipped in learning about your enemy. The devil is not alone. It's not just the devil. He has a whole crew with him. He has a crew with him. Now, just first a little bit about the devil. He's called different things in Scripture. The devil, Satan, uh, even Lucifer, light bearer in in a particular context uh, in Isaiah. He shows up throughout the book. We see him early on in the Bible story, in the story of humanity. He shows up in the garden. In this place where Adam and Eve were placed and they were called to walk with God, the garden is really a royal temple. It's a place where God's royal king and queen are to inaugurate their reign over His creation. And it's the place. It's a, it's a temple. It's a place where they meet with God. They walked with God in this place. It was a holy place. 
And the enemy shows up in the form of a serpent. And that actually represents more than just the fact that he's an animal. It's not about zoology at all. It's a representation of, of the enemy as the tempter, as the deceiver, as a, as a mighty spiritual being. And he comes and he tempts them and, and they believe the lie. He fires a flaming dart at them and they receive it and believe it and they fall away from their relationship with God. And humanity from that point onward uh, is, is separated from God. There's destruction that follows from that. We see him at the end of the story in Revelation. He features prominently in Revelation. Not as prominently as Christ, but he's in Revelation. We see him there. We see him finally and fully defeated and cast into the lake of fire for everlasting destruction. It ends well in the judgment of the serpent. But in between this first and last book, we see him doing all sorts of things. Accusing God's people, one of his chief things, opposing the work of God, creating evil. He, he appears to be a powerful spiritual being. He's a, a chief angel. And, and we use the word angel. Angel means messenger, but really it's a, it's a spirit. Angels are spirits, they're spiritual beings. And he is a chief one. And he rebelled and became God's chief enemy. We see that in Revelation 12, and you can visit there to, to read more about that. But he's not alone in his rebellion. It looks like he took, reading Revelation 12, as many as a third of the entire angelic host. A third of all the angels, of all these spiritual beings, of different rank. There are different ranks of these angels in Scripture. Different functions. There's archangels, there's seraphim and cherubim, and there's, there's angels that come to assist people. There's all sorts of angels in Scripture. Different, there's a different hierarchy. And it looks like he took a third of the angelic host with him. Now, you can look in Scripture, Hebrews 12, and we have these verses to show, to get a sense of how many angels there are. I think, and this is important. Hebrews 12.22 tells us that uh, for the believer, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. There's innumerable angels. You can't count them. You can't begin to count them. That's how many. So that's a lot, right? I mean, more than a thousand. You can count a thousand. Ten thousand, a hundred thousand, millions, billions. Innumerable. But you can look in Revelation 5.11. It actually speaks of the, the worship going on around the throne. And it says, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. Does anyone know what a myriad is? I didn't know till yesterday or today. So, anyone know? I'd be really impressed if you did. It's ten thousand. That's what it what it means. And so there are ten thousands of ten thousand. So you multiply them and you get a hundred million. Not to say that verse means that there's exactly a hundred million, right? But that's the scale. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So there are millions of these. And then in Scripture, we can to get a sense of the number of, of the angels. This is the angels, the ones who remain faithful to God. In Acts chapter 12, there's this encounter where Peter gets out of jail and he shows up at the door and, they, and they're so surprised they don't think it's him. And it says they thought it was his angel. Do we have that there? You can go to the next verse. Acts, I think we have it. There we go. Um, so they thought it was his angel. So the idea there is that they understood that people had individual angels. There were angels assigned to individuals. We see that reinforced and even more importantly, 
explicitly stated in Matthew 18, where when the disciples don't want the little children to come to Jesus, Jesus says, don't forbid them, bring them. And then says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that wild? So there are angels assigned to each child. It looks like. Right? How many children are there in the world? Billions. So, the scale of the number of angels is not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand, not even ten thousand. I don't even think just a million. I would say billions. And so a third of billions is a billion. I mean, because it's ten billion, three billion. It's, it's billions. So when the enemy falls and he brings rebellious angels with him, there are a billion or so that come with him. So this host of the enemy is large and significant. And that's why Paul uses these words he does in Ephesians 6.12. He doesn't say, for our struggle is against the devil alone. And if you know that, you're good. No, he talks about the devil, but then he says it's against these rulers and the authorities, these cosmic powers, this spiritual evil. There's a large army of evil opposing God's people. And have you noticed what they're called as we've been going through this? Are they called angels? Just angels? Or demons? I mean, that's a word for them. They're demons or evil angels, evil spirits. What are they called in Ephesians 6.12? Rulers and authorities. Over and over again. In Scripture, they're called rulers and authorities. Now, now think about it for a second, because I, I gloss over this. As I've been digging in, I've been realizing, wow, I missed so much here. I would just look at that and think, yeah, yeah, those are all the evil things. You know, we've got to deal with them. And I just move on. They're called rulers and authorities. If it was translated into English, and this would be a proper translation or an approximate translation, kings and emperors, would that capture your attention? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, for it's against kings and emperors of the evil realm. Would that cause you to think, whoa, whoa, that's significant. Well, rulers and authorities, that's what rulers and authorities are. They're, 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 these authorities are these powers, these people who have jurisdiction, who have status, who have ability to, to reign over some realm. And there's not just one or two. There's lots of them. I want to just take us on a little journey to dig into that point a bit because I think it will help you understand what's going on and why the armor is so important. And by the way, just to tell you, wearing the armor is not a complex thing. It's simply this, living in Christ and living in light of that. That's simply what it is. And it's doing that at every moment and every way that He gives us to do it. But that's simply what it is. It's living a Gospel-centered life. It's living a life centered on the fact that He died for our sins. He paid for all of our sins on the cross. He rose again victorious over sin and death. And through faith in Him, through faith in that Gospel, through faith in that good news, we are forgiven and and belong to Him. And He's with us and He's for us. And He grants us grace to become like Him. And He grants us grace in Him to enjoy His victory. It all comes from that Gospel. So I just want to say that because I think the temptation could be like, this is overwhelming. we got billions of demons out there. 
and I'm supposed to like, I got this complex armor thing to deal with. I have no idea what that is. Well, the core of it is just simply believe in the good news and live in it. But I want to take us on a journey to understand some more about our enemy, that we might know our enemy, that we might have success by God's grace through the Gospel over this enemy. Before I take you on the journey, I want to tell you where we're going. I want to tell you what I believe the Scripture teaches in this. And it may sound ridiculous to start, but I hope at the end it makes sense. I believe that the Bible teaches us that God appointed angels to rule over and assist mankind from the heavenly realm to accomplish His plans throughout the world. That He appointed angels to rule over and assist mankind from the heavenly realm to accomplish His plans. And many, if not most, of these rulers and their assistants were part of Satan's rebellion at some point. And now abuse their authority to not serve mankind, but to afflict mankind and oppose the church. Let me now take you on the journey through Scripture just to see this. First, of course, is this use of the word rulers. That gives us a hint that maybe there are rulers involved here in this evil enemy. 1 Corinthians 2.8 tells us, as related to the Gospel, related to to the wisdom of God, says none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? The rulers of this age, that's these guys, these demons, they didn't understand God's wisdom, and so they crucified. They were behind the crucifixion. Which is amazing. So God actually tricks them, uses their hatred for Christ to accomplish the greatest good. But these rulers didn't understand this. Romans 8, we love Romans 8, 38-39, talk about belonging to Christ, being safe in Him. And it says in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good news. Christ reigns over these rulers. 1 Peter 3 talks about authorities and powers as well. Deuteronomy 32, just an interesting section of Scripture that relates to this and ties into the rest. And I think factors in Paul's use of these words. It says this, uh, Moses is speaking, he says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, that may seem weird. Because it's plural, sons of God, right? Right? And we know one Son of God, capital S. And there is one only begotten, unique, unlike, one-of-a-kind Son of God who is eternal. He's, he's eternal. He's not, he's not created. He's the eternal God. The one-of-a-kind Son. And that's what that word means. Only begotten. Actually, better translated one-of-a-kind Son. Yes, indeed there is. But in the Old Testament particularly, the word sons of God is used for angels. It's used for angels. It's used for these high spiritual beings. And that's what the meaning is here. And what it says is that when God divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the angels. But the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob has allotted heritage. He's saying all the nations out there have these spiritual authorities over them. These rulers. And yet I'm over my people. I'm the chief spiritual being. God Himself over my people. That's what He's saying in Deuteronomy 32. Let me take you in some other places. I hope 
this is making sense. By the way, um, I'm going to provide my manuscript for everybody. I'm going to do a Q&A after at quarter of 12 downstairs if you have questions. And you certainly can ask me at any point. I realize there's a lot of stuff. And maybe for me it was brand new, some of it. I mean, it's in Scripture. And the church has believed this for eons. So don't be afraid. It's not just my idea. Be afraid if it were just my idea. Uh, it, it's, it's faithful. But I just hadn't been exposed to some of it. So I realize it's, it's just, wow, whoa, slow down. Um, we'll have some time to digest it. And I can tell from the clock I'm going to do two sections here, two different sessions uh, this week and next on this one. But let's continue. Daniel chapter 10. This is, Daniel is praying and interceding about the exile. And uh, this spiritual being shows up to him. By the way, it looks like it's Christ. That's another conversation. Uh, because of who he is, matched it to what uh, I read from Revelation chapter 1 uh, and the way he identifies himself and what goes on. But, but this being is speaking to Daniel. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have, become, I have come because of your words. Then listen to this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And then verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. That word prince is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as rulers. It's the same word. And there are these spiritual beings here in Daniel chapter 10 over these regions of Persia. In Greece, and then there's Michael, one of the chief princes we know from Revelation. He's the archangel, Michael, the highest of the angels, and he comes to assist in this battle. There's a spiritual battle going on in Daniel 10. That's what's the, the point here. Daniel doesn't know about it, right? Daniel's just praying, like you and me, like we would be. We face situations, we just pray. We don't know what's going on, but this is a revelation to Daniel. While you were praying, all this stuff was going on, there were battles in the heavenlies. Christ Himself was coming and Michael the archangel coming to battle and, and there were these chief demons over Persia and, and Greece that were resisting and fighting back. And there was a battle that went on and took some time. And finally, I'm here. It's amazing. It's a picture of Ephesians 6. I can take you elsewhere in Scripture too. Um, psalm 82 is a psalm that if you read it... Uh, in light of these truths, I think you will recognize that this is about God coming before this council of, of angels, mighty angels, and actually judging the angels. Judging these angels for not doing what they were supposed to do and ruling over for the good of mankind. There's probably some connection to human rulers in this, but ultimately, if you look at it, it's very clear. These are not people. It says verse 1, God has taken His place in the divine council. Divine council not meaning these are divinities here, but these are spiritual beings. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. The gods meaning the angels. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. 
This is a psalm about judgment on these rulers. They have failed. And they are going to be judged. They're going to die. And they're going to be judged and sent to hell is what he's saying. And God Himself will inherit the nations. God Himself will rule and reign over all these nations that they were supposed to rule over. This is why this idea of these rulers over areas, this is why in Matthew 4, in the temptation as Jesus stood toe-to-toe with Satan and was victorious in that, in, through the Word of God, proclaiming the Word, this is why Satan could offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. It says in Matthew 4, 8, we could flip there, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is why John, in 1 John 5, can say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because all these evil rulers who were meant to rule over and assist in the heavenly realm, have rebelled. And there's a jurisdiction they have. It's not a complete one. And by the way, Christ in the Great Commission, in His death and resurrection, He now has all authority in heaven and earth. And He commissions us to go where? To the nations. To make disciples of all nations. To displace the enemy. And build up a people from every tribe and language and tongue. This is part of how God will rule all the nations. That is the situation. That is what's behind Ephesians 6.12. I I hope it makes sense. At least logically. Consistent argument from Scripture. But more so, I hope that you see this is the teaching of Scripture. And as I've said, I'm not alone in this. There are many, many scholars, of course, who would back this up. But even more importantly, I mean, the Word says it clearly. That's where we go. But the history of the church affirms this truth to one degree or another, that the devil has his forces and they have a level of authority in the world. And they seek to dominate with that. And yet God, in His genius plan, even used their authority over over those who opposed Him among the Romans and the Jewish leaders who wanted to crucify Him to turn it upside down. Because in His crucifixion, in their hatred in getting Him crucified, was the very victory that we needed. Where Christ died for our sins. Victorious over sin and death. And through that, we have forgiveness. And through that, Satan's authority and grip in our lives is broken once and forever. Broken in in the Gospel and in our connection with Christ. And so he came in and essentially fooled them all. Died and rose again. And through that, through the work that he's finished, now in him we have victory. And in Him, He's called, called us to go and make disciples. To go out into all the nations and go wherever we are and to live in Him. To live in the Gospel. To live in this armor. To thrive as His people individually and together. To thrive in these things. And then in doing that, to displace the enemy. And be used to win others to Christ. So that there is people, are people from every tribe and language, tongue and nation before the throne. That's the strategy. That's what God's doing. That's what's behind Ephesians 6.12 and this whole section in Scripture. I hope that makes sense. Maybe one 
illustration and application before we close, and I'll do the rest of this later. Um, I don't know, and it's a little lighter of an application because this is all really intense, so we'll do some lighter applications. Um, the game Age of Empires. Any, anyone, anyone ever play Age of Empires? Okay. I have. I haven't played in a long time, and I'm really bad at it. Whenever I play my sons, I'm just wiped out. But, but just by the way, I, I almost always beat them in risk, so I just want to say that. Um, <laughs> I haven't played Yeah. So uh, Age of Empires, uh, this idea in Age of Empires is that you're, you're supposed to conquer the map, right? And you're supposed to own the territory and the resources and, and displace the, your enemy from the map, right? That's how you win. And you have to make communities that thrive and produce all the resources and so forth. But imagine if you played a game of Age of Empires where it started out, maybe there is this version, I don't know it well enough, it started out where the opponent owned the whole map. How would you play that game? How would you possibly win? How would you possibly take territory when he owns the whole map? Because that's the situation in, in many ways. That's the background to the rules and authority. Well, I think in the Age of Empires, what you do is if you could, you can do this feature, by the way, if you could convert some of the enemy, some of those under the rule of the enemy to your side, and you started to do that throughout the map and cause those groups to thrive and have influence and grow, then, they, then you could start to displace the enemy and eventually take over the whole map. That's the plan. That's God's plan. That's what Ephesians is about. That's what this letter is about that, that gives us all these blessings, all this power, all these resources in Christ. Calls us to live it out in very practical ways, by the way. This battle is not fought necessarily like wrestling with archangels or something. It's, it's fought just in simple ways like loving your spouse, loving your coworkers, working hard, loving your church, protecting the unity of this church. Reaching those around you. Telling them about Jesus. In very, very simple ways, the battle, this cosmic battle is won. That's the plan. That's what Ephesians 6, 10-20 is about. If the band could come up as we close for today. Behind it all is the, the victory our Lord has already won. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. If you can find that Ethan in there, I know I'm jumping ahead two pages for you. Um, Colossians 2, 13 to 15 is the good news that's behind all this for us. And I want to leave you with this thought. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That's the good news. That's what the armor is about. Living in that. And by His power, winning this battle that He's put us in. We will win. He will win as we live in this. What I want us to do just in closing is just to think about 
this in prayer, and there's a lot to think about. We're going to do the Q&A and all that, I understand. But maybe there's just one element here that has struck you. Maybe it's just the realization, you know what, I've been fighting these two other enemies, and I'm going to talk about that next week, but not realizing my battle is also with this enemy. So Lord, help me understand. Maybe just that prayer. Maybe you are listening to this and you're thinking about someone else who you know is clearly under the enemy and doesn't know it. So maybe you take a moment just to pray for them. Maybe you are that person. And I want to let you know we are here as a church for you in your battle. We're not alone. None of us are meant to be alone in this battle. And we need each other. Whatever degree of battle you might be fighting, I would say the enemy is usually involved to some degree. And we want to help you in that. So let us know. And maybe just a way to respond right now is just to say, Lord, help me. I need help. Give me help.